when I lived there originally, it still felt a little edgy, you know? It had that sort of, you know, uh, everything felt like it was something out of Desperately Seeking Susan or something. <laughs> you know, it was like, uh, you know, all the restaurants seemed gay and all, you know, like everything seemed gay um, on 8th Avenue. I am Kay Anderson, and you are listening to Lost Spaces, a podcast that mourns the death of queer nightlife. Every episode, I talk to a different person about a venue from their past, the memories they created there, and the people that they used to know. Norman Brannan is a musician and writer based in Brooklyn, New York best known for his work in the band Texas is the Reason. We caught up to discuss Big Cup, a gay coffee shop located in Chelsea, New York City between 1994 and 2005. Big Cup kind of um, takes place in a period of my life that really sort of marks a lot of my sort of queer experience in, in different ways by where it bookended just by, you know, the fact of when it opened and when it closed. So in 1994, um, I was in Texas the Reason. I was uh, 20 years old, 21 years old. And uh, I was not out. I was um, a Harry Krishna at the time. <laughs> and uh, so I had, I joined the Harry Krishnas when I was 17. And I became a monk for about two years. And I took um, vows of priesthood, um, which <laughs> sounds a little weird, but um, part of the vows included a vow of celibacy. So it sort of created a weird period of time in my life because I think I knew I was gay, uh-huh. um, but I was also sort of practicing celibacy. And I was sincere about that. I didn't use the Harry Krishnas as a way to like be in the closet. It was just sort of what I was into. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but you know, when you're practicing celibacy, sexuality sort of felt moot at least for the time being. Mm-hmm. So when I left um, monkhood um, and, and- But just before, just before you left, your involvement then, does that mean you have to live in a- and, and mon- As a monastery? Monast? In a monastery, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> or in the temple, yeah. Um, only if you're planning on, you know, taking that sort of renunciate path. So um, there are different paths that you can take. You Uh don't have to become a monk. But I was in a predicament where I left home when I was 16 years old. Um, I sort of bounced around a little bit before I just decided that I was going to be a monk. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And, you know, for me, becoming a monk was about finding some discipline, finding some stability, finding some family, 
right? Mm -hmm. I left home largely because um, my family life was poor. Mm -hmm. um, I came from an abusive home. My mother uh, basically violently assaulted me my entire life up until I was old enough to fight back, and then she stopped. Um, and I knew, I always knew that I'd be leaving home as soon as I turned 16. As soon as I found out that they couldn't legally stop me, mm -hmm. that was when I was going to leave. So, so you know, the Harry Christians provided me with a lot of those things. Um, I was already, you know, coming out of the punk scene. Um, I had gotten into hardcore punk in New York and very early on, like when I was 13, I went to my first show. And, uh, and so... You know, this notion of looking for a surrogate family was very real to me. Mm -hmm. And the Hare Krishna movement definitely provided me with a more stable version of that than mm -hmm. I think I'd ever had. So I just decided that, you know, I was young. Um, why not try? Mm -hmm. And that was, uh, yeah, and that was two years of my life. And then... Um, and so what was the thing that then made you fall out of love with it or want to move on? Um, you know, I think the life of a monastic is definitely not for everyone. I think I definitely spent a good year grinning and bearing it. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, you wake up at 3.30 every morning. You go through rituals from 4.30 to 515 then you meditate for two hours then you have more rituals until like you don't eat breakfast i think until 8 30 or 9 then you're you know doing different service mm -hmm. whether that's maintenance of the temple or going out and selling books or doing all these different things it it's um kind of lonely i mm -hmm. think um because everyone is only relating to each other through the through the prism of this religion. Mm -hmm. And so what I was originally sort of attracted to, this idea of the surrogate family, started to feel less real over time because it felt like everything was seen through this prism. And I couldn't really have any sort of like real conversations with people without it somehow going back through this filter. Mm -hmm. And that bummed me out. Mm. And a good friend of mine who I'd met as a devotee, um, we started talking on the phone like every night and I was just, you know, completely going crazy. And he was just like, why don't you just leave and come live at my father's house with me? And I was like, okay, isn't your dad going to care? Don't you need to ask him? And he was like, no, nah, he's fine. <laughs> and he was, he didn't care. I sh literally just showed up and he was like, hey. Hey, what's up? <laughs> um, and that started up, I think, what became my life. Because that summer that I moved into my friend's house, he also then asked me to play in his band, who were going on tour that month. And they needed a guitar player. And I was like, yeah. And that started my career as a musician. So it sort oh, of wow. worked out. <laughs> wow. But what was that... Um... We will get onto the venue. Yeah. Um, what was that transition like from going from a very structured life to one that wasn't? Well, I think that when you leave the structured life, you go crazy. Yeah. It's sort of like coming out of the closet mm -hmm. and becoming a slut, right? Like, <laughs> which I, I mean, did. I wouldn't know. I was... <laughs> Me neither. But, um, 
but it was sort of like that. I was just sort of like going crazy, like so happy, like free. I'm just going to like watch MTV and yeah. eat junk food. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, that was my version of going crazy. <laughs> like I wasn't, <laughs> I didn't drink, TV. <laughs> I didn't do drugs. <laughs> I've been a vegetarian since I was 14. I'm a nice boy. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So my version was more, more or less just doing whatever I wanted and yeah. like feeling that freedom for the first time in my life. And, and I think traveling the country, you know, in a rock band and, and sort of meeting all these new people and, and not having any sort of rules, um, that was just exactly what I needed. And mm. then I sort of scaled back a little bit yeah. because I had to realize at that point when I got home was, cause I remember I got home from that tour and I was essentially homeless and, uh, I was like, okay, shit, I got to figure out what I do. Yeah. Who am I and what do, what do I do? Yeah. Yeah, because that's the thing, isn't it? It's like there's something liberating because, like, suddenly all these rules that had been imposed uh, either by yourself or by other people have gone. But then once that novelty wears off, it's like, fuck, yeah. what now? <laughs> yeah, you can't just sort of be without rules forever mm. maybe some people can but those are usually the people that everyone are like oh man that dude's got to get his act together <laughs> and i never wanted to be that dude i i like to think that you know i have a decent enough head on my shoulders that i know when enough is enough i think i think maybe possibly um Okay, so you came, so you'd been on this tour and came yeah. off tour. And so, at what, how old were you at that? So, at that point, I was 21 going, no, it was, no, it's not even, I was like 18. Oh. Yeah, 19 years old, something like that. Okay, yeah. so that's like a few years before yeah. Big Cup opened. So, like, so basically, like, my life between Big Cup and, let's say, um, that tour was pretty much all building a career as a musician and a writer. Mm -hmm. so I did that one tour and then I got asked to play guitar for a bigger band and then I did another tour and then I got asked to play guitar for a bigger band and so by the summer of 93 I'm in one of the biggest bands of the scene at the time and I'm making a living I'm uh, becoming well known things are starting to feel good um, but the emptiness, there was a few rounds of emptiness. So one was that the band that I was in in 93 was actually a band of Harry Krishnas. And they were called Shelter. Um, and Shelter was a band that was sort of born from this legendary New York hardcore band called Youth of Today. Uh, I grew up watching Youth of Today and, and loving Youth of Today. So when they asked me to play in their new band, I was just like, fuck, yes, let's do it. <laughs> I was thrilled. Um, and I learned a ton from being in that band because they were a big band and I didn't have to do any of the work to get there. Mm. They were already there. But wait, so hang on. Is there a Hare Krishna scene? They basically started a Hare Krishna scene oh, in the okay. punk rock world. Yeah. Okay. So it's it actually in the summer of '93 we actually took out a tour bus with like I think there were like 20 of us like 20 Harry Krishnas just traveling around America and Europe like going to shows you know with uh, you know chanting Hare Krishna between bands <laughs> like you know do, oh, selling wow. books and beads and like 
you know, it was like a whole, it was a movement. Oh, wow. Um, within the punk movement. So yeah. it was, uh, it was sort of intense, but what I started realizing on that tour and that year, I was with them for about a year and a half. And during that time, I think um, there were two things that were going on. So one was that the sexuality part was becoming clearer to me. I was feeling like it was coming to a head, like I knew I was gay. And even celibate or not, I felt like I needed to express it somehow, and Mm -hmm. I didn't know how. Mm -hmm. So that was one thing. The other thing was that I, I was starting, and maybe this was related or I was conflating it, but I started feeling like maybe I didn't really want to be a gay Hare Krishna. I didn't really know uh, you know, well, actually I did know some gay Harry Krishnas and I'll get back to that in a second, but I, I didn't know how to be a functional one, I guess. <laughs> uh, I don't know how to explain that without going into all of the details of being <laughs> Harry Krishna, but, but so, so is that you didn't have any role models. Yeah. There wasn't really anything like that. And, and, and is it, is it like forbidden or frowned upon within that religion or? Uh, I mean, it depends on who you talk to. I think there's, you know, there are people who I like to call like born again Krishnas who sort (laughs) of like bring in sort of weird Christian moralism into their, their Harry Krishna. When is that not brilliant? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They they bring it into their stew and that's, that's how they do it. Um, there are other people. So for example, the person who initiated me, who gave me my Harry Krishna name and who I made vows to my guru he um i came out to him before he initiated me because i was like he should know uh-huh. just in case that's a problem <laughs> and uh he that's so sweet so you know, <laughs> <laughs> um well, i wanted to know too right <laughs> and so i remember he just like looked at me and he was like so that's it though right i was like yeah and he's like oh okay like that's cool. He's like, my uncle was gay. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, that's fine. And, and he's like, the main thing is that the, the sort of rules are the same, whether you're gay or not. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, there are celibacy is celibacy. Of, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so there was this, you know, but there was a feeling of relief and I was sort of like, okay, that's cool. He's cool with it. Then I'm cool with this. Like, you know, I'll keep moving along in this, this route. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was definitely getting to a point where I couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore as a role model, Harry Krishna, meaning being in this band, feeling like people were looking at me as some sort of way to be a devotee. Uh, and so what, did you feel like you were a fraud or did you feel that they were? Um, well, there was still this feeling of you don't know who I am. Okay. I think that, you know, because I was still in the closet and not being able to express myself in any way um, as a gay man, I think I was feeling just not whole. Okay. And um, that's no way to be. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely no way to be when people are looking to you potentially as a guide on their own paths. Yeah. So. But but there was no, um, like, you know, lots of performers talk about their stage persona and then, the yeah, real there them. was nothing there like was, that. There was no blood. There was just all one thing for you. It was all one, ah, definitely. Okay. Yeah. So we, um, I, I sort of did the, um, I did that band for as long as I could, and then I had the foresight to start a side situation, 
um, about eight months before I knew I was going to leave the band for good, I started a magazine called Antimatter. And that became my job then for the next two and a half to three years. So the first issue of that came out in 1993. And then second issue, by the time the second issue came out, I had quit that band. And now this was my full-time mm -hmm. job. So that was 1994. And I was, so I was still obviously friends with all the Hare Krishnas. And uh, one of my best friends in the Hare Krishna movement had a loft in Chelsea on 24th Street and 6th Avenue in New York. And I lived there on and off for a bunch of time in the 90s. So in 94, I must have been living there. And, uh, and I remember one night, just, I was just, I'm going to take a walk. And I just took a walk. And again, at this point, I knew I was gay, but I had no reference for what that meant. A lot of what I realized I was doing was that a lot of my reference for being gay was just from walking around gay neighborhoods. And at the time, in the 90s, Chelsea was a gay neighborhood, but the West Village was still sort of more the gay neighborhood. So Christopher Street mm -hmm. and, you know, that whole area where Stonewall is and, you know. Um, and so I just used to walk you know, feeling connected to the to the gay community at that point was walking down 7th Avenue South and Christopher Street and not even going in anywhere. Literally just walking down the street was my way of connecting. And not going in because you were scared to go in or Maybe, not ready? Yeah, no, I mean, there was probably fear. Like I, you know, I grew up in a Pentecostal Christian family and being gay was very much um, shorthand for being a predator, uh, <laughs> being a pervert, mm. being, um, you know, the scum of the earth, basically. The, mm. the demonic uh, forces of Satan as a person. <laughs> that was how I was raised. So whether or not I believed that implicitly, <laughs> the residue persists. Yes, yes. So how can you just chuck that off? Yeah. Yeah. So there was absolutely fear. But then there was also this. So I came from a subculture of the hardcore scene called straight edge. Mm -hmm. Right? I have these three X's tattooed on my wrist. Mm -hmm. Straight edge means you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't do drugs. But there's also a sex thing, isn't there? Well, so in the original lyrics to the song was don't drink, don't smoke, don't fuck, or I'm fucking it up, but it's it's in there, but it wasn't like a, a thing about celibacy necessarily. Yeah, yeah, but but it's it's more about non-promiscuity. Yeah, right? or just like <laughs> non it was basically like mindful sex, right? <laughs> I guess. Know them for a week first. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but but generally speaking straight edge kids don't drink, don't yeah, smoke, yeah. and don't do drugs. And many of them are vegetarian or vegan. Yeah. So that was the world that I was from. And at that point, I still very much um, called myself straight edge. So it, uh, it was something that I felt strongly about. It was a huge part of my life. And unfortunately, walking down Christopher Street or walking down 7th mm. Avenue South... It was like, what was I going to do? Yeah. I was either going to a sex shop or going to a bar. Mm. And I'm just going to, what, drink soda and hope that 
someone talks to me who's not drunk. Like, <laughs> like I just sort of was like, this sucks. Yeah, like, yeah. so that was really, I remember that area and I still, you know, it's funny. I still walk down 7th Avenue South, like just randomly when I'm going places and I get, I, I moved right back into that mindset uh, and remembering that feeling, but it didn't matter. Like, that's the thing that's crazy is that not going into any of these places didn't matter to me. It still fed something in my soul. I cannot figure out why or how, but that's that's what it did for a good amount of time. And and so was there like a thrill to it? There was also a thrill, definitely, because there was a feeling of like, you know, you're doing something that feels a little illicit. Yeah. You could potentially, I could potentially walk into this bar. Yeah, yeah. You know, like it, it felt like, the thrill, I guess, it's sort of like the thrill of like when you just meet someone and you don't know where it's going to go. Right? Yeah, yeah. That's sort of how it felt. Any night could have been the night that something yeah. crazy happened, right? It can go in all these different directions. Yeah. yeah. But it, you know, it never did. And it just, and that was fine because I was just sort of like trying to deal with my sexuality the way that I could figure out how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And I actually even remember at that time, I was working at a health food store in the East Village called Prana. And I remember one morning, so this would have been in 1993 or 92 or 93. Um, one morning I was sort of cleaning up out front uh, in front of the store, just sort of like, you know, getting rid of all the trash that gets swept up into the New York City streets overnight. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I remember I found a gay magazine but it was like not like a glossy gay magazine it was like a black and it was looked like a fanzine it was cool like it was pornographic but it looked underground i don't remember what it was called i don't remember anything about it i just remember taking it and just putting it in my backpack and being like oh my god <laughs> like this is amazing I'm and gonna... then over the next three months you got covered in stains yeah. yeah well actually i kept it for like a day before i was oh. just like completely like i, I can't keep this fuck because i was just like worried of someone finding it you know oh so it was but you like looked at the pictures of right? course oh okay, yeah good. like yeah okay. no i mean and I'm... those were etched into your brain yes. before you threw them okay and the excitement and sort of like the the reality of my wiring was very real you know like i knew my being gay even though i had not even kissed a man at that point was not hypothetical mm-hmm. whatever this was turned me the fuck on <laughs> <laughs> it's what i wanted right so so the seventh avenue south thing that was a good period of time but then i moved to chelsea and i was living in chelsea and so in the 90s in chelsea there was a strip that at least among people that I knew, we called it the Strip. And the Strip was 8th Avenue between 14th Street and 23rd Street. And it's funny because over the years, there were even like sides of the street that were like, like the east side of the street was the cruisy side. And like, <laughs> and the west side of the street was more like, you, you know, you got business to do. You got, you're going somewhere. <laughs> But what, like, what, what, what do you mean? Like if you're walking along that side? Like you almost expect it to be cruised on the east side of the street. Like whereas you didn't get cruised as much on the west side of the street. How? 
<laughs> How wide is this street? Let me see. It's just sort of like, it was almost like a hanky coat of a street. I don't know. <laughs> so what, but so what, if you're on the west side and you yeah. spot someone that you fancy on the east side, you have to like get over. Well, you wouldn't get because it's, the road. it's an avenue. So it's a pretty. So it's quite. It's, but that's it's like wide. six lanes? No. How? No, it's uh, four. So you wouldn't, okay. you wouldn't necessarily. I mean, you can still spot someone that you fancy. On you the wouldn't. No? No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. And if you were looking, you'd be on the east side. <laughs> okay, so there's no, like, massive pileups of cars because you dashed through. <laughs> no, no. But, but that, so that period, and so at this time in 1994, I didn't know shit about 8th Avenue. I didn't know what it stood for. I didn't know anything about Chelsea, really. Um, until one fateful day. Until one fateful <laughs> night. It was, uh, so... I was uh, I was just bored and I was sitting at home and I was just like I'm just going to go out and wander and explore, and um, and this is what people did before the internet, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, so like I lived with a bunch of Harry Krishnas, so we didn't have a TV, we didn't have you know we didn't do shit. Did you have a toaster? So, yeah, we did. <laughs> we weren't Amish, <laughs> but um, but yeah. So like I I left the house and like I said I lived on Sixth and Twenty Fourth, so I just walked west. And, you know, soon you're on 8th and 24th. And then I walked south and I saw this coffee shop. And I was like, oh, this is you know, that's a cool coffee shop. I'll walk in here. And I went into the coffee shop. I ordered some coffee. And I sat down. And uh, I remember, like, looking for the Village Voice or something and, like, you know, and seeing there was Village Voices, but there was also HX, uh, you know, the sort of, like, the gay mags, the gay weeklies with all the club dates and mm-hmm. all that stuff. And uh, I was like, hmm. uh, I kind of wanted to stick an HX in a village voice. And I was like, oh, lucky me, you know, kind of thing. And uh, but then as I sat there drinking my coffee, it became apparent to me that there were no women here. <laughs> <laughs> that all of the men looked vaguely familiar. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And just, they, you know, there were just other things. I mean, there were, I think there was a rainbow flag somewhere in there. It was like, you know, it was starting to feel like, oh, shit. Is this a gay coffee shop? <laughs> <laughs> and just feeling like this. I mean, again, it was sort of like first that feeling of like illicitness. It mm. was actually like an excitement. Like, holy shit, I'm in a gay establishment. Um and then there was also a fear of like, holy shit, I'm in a gay establishment. What if somebody walks past and sees yeah. me? This place is well lit. <laughs> um, and and I remember like I just drank my coffee and left and then sort of like was like, goodbye. <laughs> um, I was just completely, uh, you know, it was scared. It, it almost felt like losing my virginity in a way <laughs> because it was really the first time that I'd ever spent time sitting in a gay establishment around gay people. It was like 7th Avenue South taken to the next level. <laughs> I wasn't just on your street. I was in your building now. Using your lavatory. Yeah, it was really, it was intense. And it sounds stupid, but it really was. And so, so this was your first time. You were there for how long? Long enough to drink a cup of coffee. One cup of coffee. Yeah. No one talked to you. Mm-mm. You didn't. Did you make eye contact with anyone? No, not, no, no. As soon as I realized. <laughs> no, that's too much. <laughs> as soon as I realized that it was a gay coffee shop, I got really 
looked, you know, shy and sort of oh, nervous. Wow. Um, and I just remember like walking home and just being like, oh, shaking almost. Like I was just like, oh my God. Um, and the, and the, I, I, the shaking was because you were excited, because you were panicked. All of it. All of it. All of it. Because it was becoming real. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that <sighs> there are different moments in a gay man's life where things feel real. You know, maybe it's the first time that you knowingly masturbate to something gay <laughs> and you're finally just admitting it that that's exactly what you're <laughs> doing. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, you know, I accidentally masturbated. <laughs> well, like, okay. I mean, I don't know if you're of the school of gay men who never looked at straight porn and, you know, pretending <laughs> that you cared anything about the woman. <laughs> oh, I see. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, no, I never Yeah. I mean, a lot of people I know did. I certainly did. It was definitely like this cognitive dissonance that I was creating in my head where I was just like, it's just porn. Uh, you know, every now and then I'd look at the, at the woman. <laughs> but that wasn't, you know, that wasn't what I was really fixated mm-hmm. on. You know, mm-hmm. uh, that wasn't where my fantasy was going. Um, and then there, there's definitely... At that point, I was knowingly stepping, unknowingly stepping into a gay establishment. But there was a conscious decision to stay, to linger, to mm-hmm. sort of experience it. Um, you know, and then there's obviously, you know, kissing a guy for the first time or all these other things. They all or even coming out for the first time, saying I'm gay. All of those things gave me the same type of feeling. I remember mm. that, ooh, <laughs> that super weird, shaky, kind of exciting feeling. And that was what I got that night. It was a really, it was a feeling that this is getting real. And so, so you rushed home. Yes. How long before you then went back? Not long. Ah. <laughs> um, it, it didn't take long i mean i'd probably say like maybe a couple weeks i I did have to work a little nerve up to sort of like you know it may have even been something where i was just walking around you know what i mean where in the back of my head i knew where i was going but i didn't want to admit it and and then how many times did you pass the door before you plucked up the courage to actually go in oh at that point i you know i was fine going in okay but it still was illicit it still was secret it still was um, something that I didn't uh, talk about. I didn't tell people I'm going to Big Big Cup. I'll see you there. <laughs> it was. Uh, but would that have meant anything to anyone? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Um, but I I didn't want to deal with if it did. Okay. Um, the thing is, is like so. At, in 1994, I was finally in a band of my own, mm-hmm. right? I was, or I was finally starting a band of my own. Yeah. Like I was finally in a place where um, I had built up enough of a name for myself and, and enough of a network around the world where I could start a band. And if we were good, things could happen. It could be yeah. real. And the idea of coming out at that point was unfathomable, uh-huh. unfathomable. Like, no. I would have more success just being an out Harry Krishna than an out gay man. And um, that's a fact. 
I have no, I, I'm not going to be one of those guys who tells you like, I should have just come out back then because it would have been fine. It yeah. would not have been fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, not in my scene at that time. And, uh, and so I had to sort of just be insanely secretive and insanely closeted, really. Um, I wasn't closeted to the point where I was like talking to people and saying, you know, like, oh, that girl's hot or yeah. something like that. I just, you know, was very quiet. I just didn't really talk to people at all. And I just did whatever I needed to do to sort of nourish that part of myself. And so the thing about Big Cup is this. It was as much or as little as you wanted it to be. It was a gay space without pressure. It was a gay space without um, sort of hard rules of who could attend, right? Like at any given moment, there'd be twinks, bears, jocks, daddies, whoever, like- And even women. And I even saw, women, I mean, can, can <laughs> not that much it? though. <laughs> <laughs> Usually it was just like one girl hanging out with her gay friends. <laughs> um, and occasionally this, the, the random straight person who wandered in for a cup of coffee. <laughs> um, but it was, it was all the things that I feel like I couldn't get from any other gay venue at the time. At the, at the best case scenario, the other venue, and not a venue, but the other public space that I could go into also getting that same sort of nourishment was the different light bookstore which was um, not far so on 18th street, I think around the corner and a different light bookstore, which doesn't exist anymore either. Also sort of the same vibe. Um, and it really, that really sort of spoke to me as somebody who is a writer and like is interested in sort of books and like reading, like that's, you know, that's where I started like buying sort of like my first little books here and there. Oh. And, uh, you know, and then just being like, I'm just open-minded, you know, <laughs> reading my open-minded books. <laughs> just trying to get a better perspective. <laughs> but I remember there was a book that I bought called The Best Little Boy in the World. And I, I would love to read that book again. I wish I still had it. Um, my memory of it may be completely flawed. But I related to that person, whoever this person was. He wrote under a pseudonym and then eventually came out as Andrew Tobias, who I think was like eventually the, uh, a democratic treasurer in the United States government. But like at the time was a random guy writing a book anonymously because <laughs> that's what we did. <laughs> um, and he was a very overachiever. He was one of those type A gays. Uh-huh. That was type A because... Wait, do we need to explain what type A gay means? Overachieving gay, just, I would say. Okay. Like, you know, somebody who just very... Just like with impossibly white teeth. <laughs> yeah. But someone who's... who's um, I can explain it through my prism, like, which is to say, like, growing up, I was straight A student, best behaved, like, most together child that you could ever see. Because as long as I was all those things, no one would ask, what's wrong with you? Mm -hmm. No one would ask, no one would think that you could be anything other than the perfect. It's very contained. Yes. Very, yeah. Just the perfect person. Yeah. And you're going to be such a success when you grow up. And, 
and then you a lot of people carry that into adulthood they never it never goes away you just sort of I, I, it has gone away from me. I'm not that anymore. I don't care. Mm. I'm now at this point. I'm just sort of like, yes, I'm flawed. I'm fucked up, and I'm twisted, and I'm also gay. Mm. <laughs> um, but back then, it was sort of a measure of armor mm-hmm. against um, any sort of feeling that there's something quote unquote wrong with you. Yeah. And I read that book, and just was that was a huge, huge um, moment of recognition for me as seeing someone who. Um, represented the type of person that I thought I was. Yeah. And and so does the book uh like unpack the mindset of that type? Well, there was a follow-up book uh-huh. called The Best Little Boy in the World Grows Up. And I feel like that unpacked a lot of it more than okay. the other one. The other one felt more like a coming of age story. Um, okay. whereas the second book sort of became like a, a bit more preachy or a look back at that story with a critical <laughs> lens because <laughs> it was more like I can use my real name now even <laughs> right um, yeah, anyway but so the dif- so different light big cup those were places that I felt like I could go to where I could feel gay where I could exchange words with gay people where I could sort of like dip my toes in Mm -hmm. very non-threatening, very inclusive, very welcoming. Um, and also very non-judgmental, you know, it wasn't like going to a bar and where the energy is either alcoholized or sexualized. Um, you know, people, I think in retrospect, talk about, Big Cup is a super cruisy place. And I guess that was the case. I mean, certainly people tried to pick me up, but like, I didn't feel it. I didn't necessarily feel that way about Mm -hmm. it. I felt like people sometimes just wanted to sit there and just hang out. And that was, that was more sort of what my vibe was. I just wanted to hang out. And so why couldn't those people just hang out in a coffee shop for anyone? Um, you mean just a regular coffee shop? I think that to certain, to certain extents, um, they did, um, before Big Cup, right? Mm -hmm. Like there were other coffee shops that weren't officially gay coffee shops, Mm -hmm. but I feel like it's important to have a space that's yours. And I think that that was the thing about Big Cup that everyone I know who's been there will say the same thing. Like, it just felt like we finally had a space that we could go to during the day where we could be us completely, no matter what. Mm -hmm. And I still think the nineties was a time in the early nineties was a time where, um, we weren't allowed to be ourselves completely, no matter what, even if we were at, you know, Starbucks or wherever, Mm -hmm. you know, was open in 1993. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just, I don't even think you get that at a gay club. Or a gay bar. You can't be yourself at a gay bar. Nobody's themselves at a gay bar. <laughs> I feel like you put on your gay bar persona. <laughs> yeah, putting on my gay bar. <laughs> I think people have gay bar personas. <laughs> uh, and that's because of the sexual nature or the you know, like alcohol. I th- yeah, there's, I mean, 
And it's like more of a a chutzpah or a bravado. Sure. Like as I eventually graduated into gay bar world. (laughs) um, Did you get a certificate? I I didn't. I just (laughs) sort of skipped a few grades. (laughs) Um, No, but I mean, as I eventually started moving into gay bar world, it was, um, you know, I realized that I had to walk a certain way. I had to project a certain sort of thing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if I was going to get any attention. Okay. Okay. Yes. So I do want to talk about this. So, so at, uh, at what point after you'd started going to Big Cup, did you then graduate? So this is where uh, it's kind of interesting. So the band took off uh-huh. and then I just sort of was on tour all the time. And I'd come home from tour and I'd, you know, I'd still visit. I'd still go there. But um, little by little, it was sort of becoming not enough. Mm-hmm. Like, because I was still not out, like mm-hmm. properly out. At this point, by the end of the band, I would say like people knew and not because I had particularly come out, but more because I just didn't censor myself anymore. I sort of just would say things that a gay man would say. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> um, I don't know. Like, I mean, I would, I wouldn't care about calling a guy hot or cute okay. or like, you know, things like that, you know, which like most of my straight friends did not do. So, you know, I think people were eventually hip to it. And I never actually, I would say, came out. I think everyone just sort of knew and accepted it almost overnight, Mm -hmm. at least within my world and music. Mm -hmm. Um, But when the band broke up, it was a traumatic situation. And that was in 1997. And so at that point, I moved to the Lower East Side and I got super depressed. And I remember like for an entire year, I just wore all black. And I just, I, I went to this coffee shop in, in that neighborhood, in my neighborhood, uh, called the Pink Pony Cafe, which unfortunately, despite its wonderful name, was not a gay cafe. <laughs> but it did have a good friend of mine who was the barista, and he would just give me free coffee until I was like sweating and jittering and freaking out. (laughs) And then I would basically just go home and do nothing all day because the band had made enough money to where I didn't have to have a job. I could just do nothing and be depressed for a year. So (laughs) I did that. And, but you know, the depression was partially the band breaking up and it was also partially finally getting to this place now where it's 1997, I'm 23 and it's just like, I'm fucking over this. I need to come out. I need to be fully gay. I need to be whole. And so at this point, I actually left New York. I moved to Chicago. And my first gay sexual experience happened at a gay club. (laughs) You know, like, uh, well, didn't happen there, but it happened after that. You were 23. Yeah. Wow. So that was... And that was a very conscious thing where I said, I need to take the next step to make it real. I need to be real. Like I've got all these steps that feel real, but now it's like, this is the one, like I need to go this route. And so, and what, are we talking like any old man will do? Well, I mean, he had to be cute. <laughs> like, let's get this over and done with you. No, no, no. I didn't go. To, well, first of all, I didn't even. I didn't go to the club looking to get laid per se. I I went to the club just to like hang out and you know dance because I liked you know house music. Um, it just so happened that a very cute guy put his hands around my waist on the dance floor, and I just thought, oh, 
hello, okay, I'm into this. <laughs> and, uh, and things went from there, and I was like, you know, got that shaky jitter thing afterward. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, everything just felt confirmed, right? But I feel like... But wait, wait, wait. You had sex in the club? No. Oh, oh. I thought that's what you said. I'm not I was that. like, okay, now I need the story. Not that bold. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, if it was like in someone's apartment, I don't care. No, so no, no, no. it was in my apartment. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, you know, after that and sort of like, and then finding other spaces. So, for example, in Chicago, I worked at a record store called Gramophone Records. It's worldwide legendary, one of the most major first house music record shops in the world still exists like an incredible place. And the owners were a gay couple. Um, They sort of became, I felt like my gay godfathers. Like I was just so like, when I got the job, I had no idea what I was getting into because a straight person actually brought me in. And, uh, and then when I met everybody, I was like, Oh my God, everybody here is like gay or trans or, you know, like this is amazing. And I remember just feeling like I always talk about this one time that I was like standing, um, by the cash register and I sort of like looked around and surveyed the store and I was like, you know, straight white guy, gay black guy, trans black woman, you know, gay Asian, white gay couple, like, you know, and I was just like feeling like, oh my God, this is like what I've wanted my entire life. Like this is a place with people like me. You know, even the people that were straight were basically gay. (laughs) Because I mean, in Chicago, house music is gay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we we know where it comes from and nobody's trying to put that back in the closet. Nobody's mm. trying to say Frankie Knuckles wasn't gay. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Derek Carter is gay, you know, like it's like, we know that this is a gay subculture of people of color mm. and we treat it that way. And so that was another part of my identity that I think had also sort of like gone by the wayside, you know, because I was involved in such white subcultures for so long that when I moved into house music, um, I was finally able to sort of embrace the fact that I am not white. And hey, I need to talk about that. Mm. <laughs> and what, you know, what was going on? How did this get lost over the years? So, um, so gramophone, I think, played a really huge part of my becoming whole. You know, integrating my identity. Um, and like, I always talk about how you know, this word integrated, you know, is very closely related to integrity. That's what it means to have Mm. integrity. It's to be whole, Mm. to be perfectly integrated, not compartmentalized, you know, which I think is what I was for so many years. And so I, you know, I lived away from New York for some time. And then I came back to New York in 2003 and moved to Chelsea. Uh-huh. <laughs> 2003 2004 it was pretty much right when big cup was about to end but at that point i was an out gay man i was on the town <laughs> you might have to explain that to it me. was a very different time <laughs> in my life but it was it was amazing to i, I you know I can't describe the hole that it left. 
because the Starbucks opened across the street. Uh huh. On the west side, the non-cruisy side of Eighth. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, Big Cup was on the east side of the <laughs> Avenue. Um, and going and reapproaching this space as an out gay man who's sexually active and fully integrated, it just felt like. I finally understood everything that I didn't understand all those times where I would just go and sit and drink coffee and mm-hmm. occasionally strike up a conversation, but never take it to the next level. Because all I wanted from that first wave of Big Cup was to feel like I belonged. Mm-hmm. But in the second wave, when I came back to New York, it was about, a, it, was, it was more like I was appreciating it. And sort of understanding it for what it was in the in a way that I could never have understood ten years before. Did you ever go to Big Cup? Well, if you did, I would love to hear from you. Please share your stories, anecdotes, and any photos, even if you had an embarrassing haircut at the time. Via social media, you can find me uh, under the username K Anderson Music. You can also find out more about Norman at Instagram and Twitter with the username Norman Brannan. Lost Spaces is not only a podcast, but a concept record as well. I've been writing songs about queer venues and the stories that took place there, uh, and we'll be releasing songs over the coming year. You can hear the first single, Well Groomed Boys, which is also playing underneath my talking right now on all streaming platforms. If you liked this episode, I'd really appreciate if you subscribed, left a review, or just told someone who you think might be interested in listening too. I am Kay Anderson, and you have been listening to Lost Spaces. <laughs>